Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Seeds Podcast. Today, we have a guest that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, Dr. Layla Walk Coburn, and she is an associate professor in infectious disease at Emory University and a fellow of the Infectious Disease Society of America, a fellow of the American College of Physicians. She also has a degree in tropical health, and there are so many tropical health questions that come up in uh, transplant infectious disease, so I'm hoping that she helps us to uh, shed some light on that. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Shamal. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And always, it's great to talk about parasites and global health and global south diseases that we have today, especially in our transplant patients who seem to either acquire them or go to exotic places to acquire those diseases. Yeah, we want to do uh, transplants so people can go back to their uh, regular lives. And if that includes traveling to uh, a part of the world where infections that we think of as tropical, although our sense of what is tropical and what is infections of more temperate climates is changing. So tell us about yourself. So um, I'm a Latina. I was born in Guatemala and uh, my mom is from Panama. So I'm from Guatemala and Panama. I did my internal medicine, I did my medical school, sorry, my medical school in Guatemala, Universidad Francisco Marroquín, and then as a proud foreign medical graduate, came to the United States, did internal medicine in Chicago, and then I went to Cleveland, a case to do my infectious disease fellowship. My first job, or there, I was at Baylor for about a decade, and then I transitioned during the pandemic, which is probably not the best time to transition for a job in June of 2020 to Emory. And now I'm based here with the Transplant ID group, as well as the Emory ID faculty. Fantastic. So I know a little bit about Guatemala, but uh, the thing that I know the most about Guatemala is uh, Pollo Campero, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the chicken restaurant. In, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, we have some outposts, but I once flew on a plane that went through Central America. And what I noticed is that people brought their own Pollo Campero back to the U.S. Apparently, we don't do as good a job. No, there, there is a place in D.C. on, uh, I think, uh, 16th Avenue or something like that. But Pollo Campero is a staple. I grew up with it. Now I don't have a much of a craving because I've discovered Southern Fried Chicken, which is a mm-hmm. little bit different. It does have a little spice, so that little hot sauce is incredible. But it is a staple. But Guatemala is a country that we call spring-like. It has a wonderful temperature. We're nestled between seven active volcanoes. And our number one export, actually, our two number one exports, one is coffee, which the Colombians might say theirs is the best of the world. But I have to defend mine and say that Guatemala is the best coffee. And then, of course, rum. Ron Sacapa is extremely known for that. And then tourism. It's a wonderful country to visit. We have great opportunities for traveling. If you want culture, if you want to do hiking, you can go up to the volcanoes. If you want to just, you know, kind of chill, it's, it's an incredible place. Unfortunately, as all the global South countries are, or the low middle incomes, we do have some political tensions and our elections are this Sunday coming up on August 20th. Thank you. Well, hopefully that will go uh, smoothly and safely and the will of the people will be uh, respected. We're hoping. There, there is already tensions about this, but <laughs> let's hope 
let's let's hope it goes accordingly and nothing else happens like it happened in Ecuador yeah. with the recent assassination. But that's that's the way we are, and that's how we grew up. Or uh, in Latin America, we have this ebbs and flows of of power, and you know, still like that, we're resilient and try to work through it. Yeah, yeah. So after Guatemala, you came to the United States and you've forged your way in infectious disease. And tell us about how uh, your journey to end up in the special part of infectious disease that you are in happened. So, you know, tropical medicine is something that you, you when you do medical school in, in Latin America, is something that you see every day. And a lot of people told me that I wasn't going to make a career in tropical medicine because... There's no career, but obviously there is a wealth of it. In my time at, at Case Western, I got a diploma where I, you know, at that time we explored more the immunosuppressions in our HIV population, AIDS uh, having, and then a little bit of transplant. This is, you know, I mean, transplant is coming up and my move to Baylor actually opened up a whole area. In 2012, the Tropical Medicine School was opened by Peter Hotes at Baylor, and that helped us start doing a little bit of research on Chagas and, and strongyloides and parasitic infections. At that time, the transplant was starting to blossom in, in the medical center, and we were starting to see patients that came from either endemic areas with tropical medicine and then kind of mimicked a little bit of what I had been doing with our HIV population. So it was a nice pivot to start seeing immunosuppressed patients in solid organs and then on, on liquid and that have tropical medicine diseases. So parasitic diseases mostly, but also you can, you know, fungal diseases are, which are endemic can also be part of, of those of that gender. Great. So one of the tropical medicines that we encounter all the time, at least in terms of thinking about it, is Chagas. And I'll tell you a little bit of the polarization that happens with Chagas. As you go through as a medical student and as a resident and even as an ID fellow, and you, you when you think of Chagas, you think of the, that really big assassin bug and thatched roof houses and the Romana sign. And then uh, you... Uh, are hit on the head with the reality that that's not how Chagas plays out in the real world. So tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, Chagas is what we call the America trypanosoma. There's two types of, of trypanosomiasis, one that is endemic in the Americas and one that is endemic in Africa. The African trypanosomiasis is what we know as sleeping sickness, which mm -hmm. either can be early or chronic. But Latin America has a particular tissue protozoa, which is uh, uh, Trypanosoma cruzi. Uh, it is transmitted by a retrovid bug. And, you know, due to global warming, this bug has started to migrate. And actually, there was a historical study done by Nolan Garcia, who uh, Melissa is now uh, in, in the Carolinas, where she documented that you can see the striatomes all the way up to Chicago, then with urbanization, it kind of just went down south. And then as, as we started, more global warming started migrating. And so, for example, studies done in, in Texas, you could see that Chagas was endemic there. It's mostly um, in the dog population, right? But that led us to start looking at work of who had like autochthonous cases. So it was not important, right? 
And so they are documented, for example, if you do uh, hunting. So mm-hmm. in, in, in Texas, you, as well as in Arizona, you have these deer leases, which are this wooden hatch. And, and, and the wood is, is particularly important because the, the root of it bug actually sleeps there. And then when people are still, they come out and have a blood meal, and that's when you get infected. We also documented a, a colleague of mine when she was a fellow, uh, Nadine Harris, published about a case of a soldier that was doing dirt training in Arizona and got a root of it bug and uh, got chagas out of it. And that's the acute part. So... The acute is when you get infected, and then the chronic, because this can live in your tissue for many years, is what you see as a medical student. This cardiomyopathy, uh, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, kind of heart failure uh, on a very young age. And and this is the case of what we see, for example, in Brazil, uh, Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina, Bolivia, where we see this young people having non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. We also discovered that you can actually swallow this and mm-hmm. have a digestive this. And so in Brazil, where there's a lot of the fruit that is very popular now for protein bowls, acai, mm-hmm. uh, you mesh this and you actually drink the juice and, and as you crush the, the bug, you're actually ingesting the parasite. So, so there's many ways of doing it. But in our transplant world, uh, where we're worried more about is the transmission either from mm-hmm. a donor or a reactivation from a previous infection in the recipient. Yeah, and that, that's an area that I've become increasingly aware of is screening for Chagas. Um, should we be screening all the donors that are coming from uh, areas in the U.S. that are potentially endemic for Chagas? Should we be uh, more focused on it? How do you order the screening? Yeah. So, you know, so there is very good guidance on the OPTN. Uh, there's a PDF on Chagas that have been. There is a paper. It's a, it's, it's a paper that is about 10 years old about Chagas in transplant from the working group recommending what to do. So mm-hmm. definitely you're going to screen people born or residing in endemic areas in Latin America. So, for example, we know that the Bolivian population is highly endemic. Mm-hmm. So anyone coming from there, so Mexico, Central America, so Guatemala has Chagas, but actually you have more Chagas, prevalence of Chagas in El Salvador. So mm-hmm. uh, Rachel Marcus, who is a cardiologist who does this, founded a heart clinic based in LA because of the large migration of, of uh, Salvadorians there where we see increase. People coming from South America, so I already mentioned Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, Bolivia, areas where we can, you want to, you know, screen them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone, who, a child, a woman who has lived in an endemic area because there's mother transmission, I've seen this more, is reported more in patients who have traveled to other countries, so exportations in Japan and, and, and in Barcelona and in Spain, there's been a large part. Uh, hmm. People receiving blood transfusion in the MEC area, so the number one cause of of travel injuries or travel diseases is actually a motor vehicle accident. And hmm. so not all places have screening for blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, through the Red Cross, it does. And so, you know, the same thing in, in other parts of the world, the Red Cross blood is screened. So dubious places of transfusion. Previous diagnosis of Chagas disease and anyone. And in, in the United States, where we had seen is kind of Texas, the Louisiana area, Arizona, so the southern border, 
the southern, western of the United States is where we've seen it. So those would be the patients to screen. And when you're talking about screening, is this going to be somebody comes and I see them and they are from El Salvador? Do I ask, oh, you know, you're from San Salvador, you're going to be okay? Or is it is it pretty much everybody? No, I, 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 it's pretty much everywhere because you don't know if that person has traveled, you know, went on a weekend and traveled somewhere and they might not remember the, the Romania sign, which is basically, uh, so when the root of it bug bites, it actually is like an insect bite, right? So it becomes mm-hmm. inflamed and edematous. And then as it bites, it defecates and then you scratch and then you get your parasites from the poop into that area that was that you just scratch. So thinking about it's like you have a, a mosquito bite and it's itching and you scratch and then you get like a staph or strep infection. But in this case, you, you put the parasite in there and that's where you see this swelling. So you, people might not remember that. Mm-hmm. So I, so the screening is usually a serology. It's a two step process. The first step is a serology. So you order T. cruci, IgG, IgM. And then if, if they come positive, then you want a confirmation test. And the confirmatory mm-hmm. test is an immunoblot, which is done at the CDC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now that you've done the test, and by the way, this is incredibly helpful because, uh, this is an, at least for me, this is an area of obscurity. So, uh, and I can read it in the paper a zillion times, but just hearing it talking makes the difference for me. So now I've done the test and the test comes back positive, which is much to my horror. It comes back positive. So now I have to do something about this donor. Do I tell them, no, you just can't donate or what do I do? So, so for example, you, you might have the part where you tested or they come with a letter from the transfusion place where they went to donate blood saying mm-hmm. that they have tested positive for Chagas. So mm-hmm. your next step is to send that sample to the CDC for a secondary test. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a form, a PDF form that you can download and you just send this, uh, this is the red top. So basically serum to the CDC and then you fill it out. For example, I want testing for Chagas and this patient is from, had a positive. And so then you can go. There is a myth. Uh, or I guess not a myth. Before we used to say that we could do like an EKG and just screen them out because a normal EKG means you didn't have Chagas. And that's, that's not true. You can have a normal EKG and still have a cardiomyopathy. You can also have another form, which is a GI form, which will not be seen in EKG. So positive serology, confirmatory test from the CDC, which is the immunoblot. Great. So anybody that's listening that is worried about RVUs and all that stuff, don't worry about this because when you do ID, no, they won't give you RVUs for interacting with the CDC. But hey, you're interacting with the CDC on Chagas. <laughs> yes. And, and to make a plug, there is a, a U.S. Chagas network. It is a network done by a lot of us who do either clinical or research in Chagas. It's a U.S. Chagas network, and you go there. We have quarterly meetings where we present cases on how to handle, and then also gives you connection, like, you know, Sue Montgomery, who's at the CDC, or Karen Byrne, who's at UCSF, who are like the national experts on Chagas. 
No, that's really, uh, and, and I don't mean to, to be uh, flippant about the importance of infectious disease doctors getting paid for the work that they do, but I was trying to make a point that you can be involved also in really uh, interesting stuff that makes a huge difference in patients' lives because now you've identified donor that is positive by serology and you can counsel that donor about what it means for their health, but you can also make a difference in terms of the recipient. So what do you do with the positive donors? So the, if you have possible donor, definitely, you know, so for blood, you, you cannot longer donate, right? Even mm-hmm. if you treat. So if you're a blood donor, you, you don't donate. Now, also, and, and this is a very great area about donating organs. Mm-hmm. So this was a discussion of our last meeting because there was a case that is going to come up from that was done at uh, Montefiore. Dr. Vagish Hamish uh, mm-hmm. and colleagues, they presented this case of someone who had Chagas as a, in a transplant. Uh, and it was a reactivation post-solid organ transplant. And the question came out, if you could donate heart, liver, kidneys, if you treated the donor. And there's no clear data. There was, there was a discussion that you could wait for two or five years. And then when you donate, you, you kind of follow the patient with a, a PCR, the recipient to see if there was. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another school of thought where you would do benzonidazole, which is uh, one of the drugs that we use for treatment as a prophylaxis, like we do with toxoplasmosis or when we have CMB, um, that part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in order to avoid that reactivation. Before, and, you know, it was a hard stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because because yeah. even now you can get benzonidazole, it's easier to get. The company is called, you, there's the website is benzonidazoletablets.com. Before you had to order them from the CDC, which was harder. So I've never prescribed that drug, and I've been in clinical practice now for uh, over two decades. So I'm assuming that most people that live as far north as I do have never prescribed the drug. What are uh, some of the things that, is there anything special about it? Is it, it sounds like a mysterious, scary drug, but is there anything about it? No. So so we, for treatment, and I mean, going back to your work, are we using? I, I made my treatment career seeing Chagas positive serologies, you know, and mm-hmm. it came, came out questions because you can offer treatment. So there is a way to document these things and, and go through it. So for treatment, there's two treatments, uh, benzonidazole and nefortimox. Uh, nefortimox is, uh, is an old medicine that you have to take for 90 days. It is not the preferred choice because of a lot of the side effects causing neutropenias, leukopenias, and LFTs abnormalities, pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. Benzonidazole, it is from the metronidazole family. So mm. it's, so, uh, Mechanism of action is unknown, just like metronidazole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, benzonidazole has been proven to be kind of the best therapeutic. There were studies, and the latest study called the Bendita study, B-E-N-D-I-T-A, showed that it could lower the burden of the parasite in chronic patients in opposed to the one previously done. So, Benzonidazole is tolerated. You take it, you can get a rash like in around day seven to nine, which is a benign rash. It's erythematous, uh, not a non-pyritic. 
uh, macular and it, it goes away. And then you monitor and you take this for 60 days. Now, how, how good it is, how efficacious it is, it's depends. You, you know, there's studies that go from 50% to about 70, 75%. The reality is, is that we don't have very good drugs for treating Chagas. Uh, mm-hmm. There's two holy grails in Chagas. One is how to revert or how to treat chronic Chagas. Mm-hmm. And the second one is how to get better diagnostics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect that as Chagas moves northward toward wealthier countries, that research will pick up on that as well. Well, we're, we're hoping. Um, and as I said, there, there are some, some new studies besides the U.S. Chagas Network. There is a Chagas Coalition and then a group called DNID, which is Drugs for Neglected Diseases like Chagas. Mm-hmm. And it's neglected even though if you look at the burden of, of Chagas in, in, in South America is quite high, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. involves impoverished community. So here we talk about health inequities. Mm-hmm. In back in 2012 with Dr. Peter Hotez, we published an article saying that it could be the next HIV pandemic uh, or endemic uh, epidemic that you could see, especially because of this root of it bugs. I had discrepancies because I never thought that was going to take that much. But if you, you can be exposed and in our transplant patients or immunosuppressed, because it's anyone whose CD4s are below 200 or have immunosuppression that you're going to have this reactivation or have this disseminated severe disease. Sure. So then let's get into that part in that the deceased donors are, uh, I'm assuming, are not screened for Chagas or am I wrong? No, so there are screens. So the, the OPTN uh, screen, uh, screens for Chagas. Uh, okay. It is part of that, especially because we have transmissions and, you know, it's still the part where you would say no to that, to that organ, unless, you know, it's one of those rare and then you, you know, and this is something you talk obviously with your patient and the patient family. You know, what are we going to do once you have an organ that has, has this, but usually is, is discarded. And in those, you only screen for the serology. So you are not going to be able to get the immunoblot, which is the secondary test. And Mm -hmm. it has to do with timing because the organ is not going to be waiting there for two weeks while you you get your answer. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, you need to make a decision that. Yeah, so if the serology is positive, you, you really are, are not going to chance your ways through it. So that's why sometimes we have these reactivations that we have seen. Like. Now, what about if the uh, recipient is screened and they turn positive and you send it to the CDC and it's still positive and you want to get the guy off dialysis or the gal of new liver? What do you do? So it's still a great area. So the recommendations are still you you actually offer them treatment right uh-huh. if they're if they are below the age of 70 depending the cutoff of what what you're going to be giving you can offer them treatment and then you are going to monitor them mm-hmm. but with the caveat that you still can have a reactivation because the benzonidazole is not the best again i think this is a part where you talk to the family you ask them has it been done? And the answer is yes. And then we, what we do is we monitor the patient. So 
Post-transplant, we do PCR microscopy. It's done in the first three months is weekly. Afterwards, on month four is bi-weekly or every, every two weeks and then month five through seven monthly. And then after that is just by symptoms. Unexplained episodes of fever or new lymphadenopathy or increasing immunosuppressant regimen, then you are going to be asking for, you know, testing again for a PCR. And, and what you want to test is a PCR because it's a reactivation and it would be like an acute part. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to do the serology. And the other population, for example, in our AIDS HIV population, the way it's done is you get a reactivation of the disease. You diagnose it, you treat it with benzidazole, and then you prophylax until the CD4s are above 250 with mm-hmm. benzidazole. So that one is just more established than in transplant. Sure, sure. Now, now in Brazil and Argentina, we do transplant patients who are Chagas positive mm-hmm. because of the cardiomyopathy. Yeah. So in 2020, a very good talk in Ivy Week was done by Laura Barcan from Argentina, who is, the, I guess, the expert, well, not that I know she is the expert, on, on Chagas and transplant in, in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Laura explains how they do it. I mean, they treat and then they do the PCR. And then they just follow, like like I explained. Terrific, terrific. So one more question on serology. And, and if you've answered this, then I apologize for being repetitious. So imagine you have a 24-year-old Argentinian woman who uh, wants to donate her kidney. And as part of the screening is found to have the uh, antibody that's positive and it's confirmed. And for whatever reason, she does not donate. And then. Uh, just before sending her on her way to her life, what is our responsibility to her? So, so when she, you know, so it's letting them know what disease they have. So you mm-hmm. want to make sure that the immunoblock. So part of what we saw the tropical medicine clinic were referrals from, from the different blood banks that mm-hmm. had positives. So you actually want to make sure that that immunoblock is done. And if it's positive, offer them treatment. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if they're 20 years old, maybe they got it, they got bitten when they were 20, uh, adolescents. So it takes about 20 years to develop this non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. And mm-hmm. so you want to give treatment before the bug causes enough fibrosis and causes enough damage to the heart. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a case where it can come back as indeterminate immunoblot. So you can have negative, indeterminate, and positive. Negative is easy, no treatment. Positive, if they're under the age, we, the cutoff we use is 50. I, I've given it uh, above that. Uh, and then the indeterminate. What do you do with the indeterminate? It means that the disease is uh, on a stagnant state. It never developed into a disease of having chronicity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of studies. It's just that we follow these patients. Mm-hmm. Also, if you have a positive patient. So the other thing you do this with this patient is you want to do an EKG and follow with a transthoracic echo. So besides doing that, you know, you come and you have a patient that has positive serology. You talk to them, you order an EKG, transthoracic echo, and you send the immunoblot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
if the immune of life comes in the terminate, if it comes negative, you stop. You're perfect. If it comes in the ter- and, and normal EKG and echo. If it comes in the terminate, depends on, you know, you follow that patient if there's any abnormality on the transthoracic or the EKG. And any abnormality could be a first degree block. Uh, a PVC or a PAC or anything that is is not the same. Mm-hmm. And if it's positive, you already have kind of a mark of knowing how to stage that patient according to the risk um, on cardiomyopathy because you'll have an echocardiogram that will tell you the ejection fraction and you have an EKG that will tell you how bad the electricity is going through the heart. Well, this is enormously helpful. This is like uh, I'm feeling like a fellow again rounding with an attending in clinic and getting great bedside teaching on complex topic. Thank you. I, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while, so I'm really glad that we're doing this. If I can switch gears for a second, so you're at Emory in Atlanta. Can you, uh, aside from the uh, fried chicken, can you tell us a little bit about Atlanta and what it's like living in uh, almost the capital of the South? I, I think it's the capital of the South. It was an interesting transition from Texas. I, I thought Texas, or the Republic, <laughs> it, it was considered the South. It is not considered the South. It, uh, it, Georgia is. One of the things I learned the most, and I learned this from, from my, from my nursing staff and from my patients is, since I'm from Guatemala, uh, about the Af- African American and the civil rights and enslavement and the health inequities and all the issues that have mm-hmm. gone throughout the years. As someone who wasn't, who didn't live here the entire life, sometimes it's hard to grasp those concepts. So it's good to be educated. And I've had uh, wonderful teachers for that. The other part I, I, I saw in Atlanta is that it's not flat, it's hilly. Hmm. So I'm a runner. I'm a late onset runner. I started running about nine years ago uh, mm-hmm. for health and as part of a, a dare to run a half marathon. Mm-hmm. And then I got hooked. And Houston is flat. So mm-hmm. I learned how to run in a flat road. Mm-hmm. I came here and there's hills mm-hmm. with a lot of gradient, which is very different and harder to do. Humidity wise, it's about the same as Houston, not as hot. And the other thing I enjoy here, which I never thought was the four season without the snow that was in Chicago and Cleveland, which was horrendous because mm-hmm. uh, that was too cold. Very diverse community. There's some amazing places to eat. So I'm a foodie. There's a road called the Buford Highway that looks like the United Nations of food stands, you know, wow. you just can just go. Uh, so, so it's uh, exciting. And then working at, at Emory at the division, I have a very supportive, a uh, great place to work. Transplant has welcomed welcome me very good. I can't complain. And the only part that it, I don't do as much global health or Trump med as I should, but that's... <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think it's where Atlanta is. I do know that Southern Georgia, uh, where we have more of the migrant workers and the poultry factories, mm-hmm. you have a larger migrant population. And so... It's just a part of how they get here. And Coca-Cola as well. Yeah. So Coca-Cola. So the biggest employers here are Coca-Cola and Delta. So an Emory at the campus uh, or anyone, you can get Coke. That You're not going to order Pepsi. This is not mm-hmm. a Pepsi country. This is a Coke country. Uh, 
So one of the nice things is like that you go to the faculty lounge and there is like a vending machine with the different cokes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, nice. <laughs> that I that that I enjoy, uh, but and then Delta. I mean, I mean, I I got in my my. I mean, I needed a big airport to travel uh, mm-hmm. around since I I enjoy doing that too. But again, it's easy to get around. It's hilly, humid because that's usually how they describe. The other thing that I have gotten used to is that everything has and the name Peach Street. Peach Street. <laughs> Everything is Beach Street. And so, I, you know, of course, I, I use a GPS or else I would be completely lost. But uh, <laughs> so where our, uh, one of our hospitals located, one side is Peach Street Northeast and the other one is West Peach Street. <laughs> so besides that, it's good. But actually, I, I, I like it. It's a different pace. It's interesting when you come as an outsider to an institution. People always think things are better somewhere else, and then you realize that maybe they're not. Uh huh. Uh huh. So you've learned lessons on uh, civil rights in America, and you've run some marathons, and or half marathons, or have you done marathons? I've done two marathons. Two marathons. And two, the others half. One in Houston, and the latest marathon in Paris. That's it. (laughs) So I'm going to hit those one by one. Uh, What are uh, some of the things that you've learned that, and a lot of people around the world are listening to this and people have different views of America. And of course, America isn't like a monolith thing. I'm going to digress for a second. Uh, It's very common when when you go to or talk to somebody from another country, they'll be like, oh, this thing, that's very German or this thing is very French. Or maybe you might even say this thing, that's very Guatemalan. But you can't say this is very American because America is so diverse. So people in other countries, they know about Disney and they know about hamburgers and they know about Apple and, and Microsoft. What should they know about some of the civil rights issues that you've learned about? Yeah, so, you know, it's um, it's interesting what American means, right? Because and also the view of the world. When I go give talks to Latin America, people are always like, oh, my God. You're, you're in the U.S. and everything is wow. I'm like, no, not everything is wow. We actually do have poverty, right? Um, so that's one of the things. And so being, you, you do feel it more here in the South. There is a clear line of how long it takes someone to get to a place. You are going to see that those health inequities affect more the African Americans as well as the Latinos. And the Native Americans, uh, over here, we don't have uh, nations, but my mom, who who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, we mm-hmm. can see that there, right? So one of them is trying to say, you know, we do. I mean, we actually see these diseases. I mean, we see people who have helmetic infections, who have strongyloides, people that have lack waste management, right? There's been some work done on on what you can find in Alabama and in Mississippi where you have some worms done by Dr. Mejia and Dr. Weatherhead from from Mm -hmm. Houston. The other thing is that with the civil rights, for me, that I think is the concept of enslavery because even living in Latin America, we had slaves that were, you know, that were free before, before here in the United States. But it wasn't a concept. We do have what we have institutionalized racism with the Mayan Indians or the First Nation people, right? So mm-hmm. that was very similar. So in, in Guatemala, we have the Mayan Indians and there is an institutionalized racism. I mean, like who can go up and how is that protected? 
We didn't have a revolution like Mexico had. We didn't have a Benito Juarez who, you know, kind of put everything into context. And there's other nations like, you know, in Paraguay where Guarani is integrated into their daily lives and, and, and we're proud. Civil rights here, the fact that you had to fight for given the rights of where to go, right? And how to study and how to be educated. And the fact that if you look different, you're going to be profiled, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, talking to some of my, my friends and colleagues is, is that sometimes when you go to a place that they don't look like you or you, you might be afraid of doing something, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for example, so in the running community, you know, if, you know, and this happened in Houston, I, I, one of my, when I was training for, for the marathon, one of my colleagues uh, was African American or one of the runners. And I used to run with her because we used to run in a neighborhood that it was just mostly white Caucasian. And, you know, like we would always have like the little cop car come by and kind of looked at us funny, right? Because mm -hmm. we were, so, so that part is felt more here. Uh, but mm -hmm. there is a lot of, you know, the university as well as the healthcare does a lot about empowering and making that those distinctions are not there. I work with colleagues who tried also to bring more diversity into the research, because that's another issue, right? Mm -hmm. Having more diversity. So Dr. Santa Wiley uh, at the Hope Clinic with vaccine research, the HIV work done at Pons. They, they really try to integrate more of that. So that is something very different than other parts in, like in Cleveland or Chicago or, or, or Houston, where I see that and definitely learn more about the struggles and the challenges that they are compared to, to everybody else. Yeah, in the research realm, it is a an ongoing challenge and, and something so important is that you want the patients that are enrolled in the clinical trials to, uh, or the subjects enrolled in the clinical trials to look like the actual patients that are going to have the medicine. Uh, increasingly, we're finding that clinical trials are done in places like Eastern Europe or uh, other parts of the world where it's easier to do clinical trials right now. And then you take the information and you try to apply it to a different population. And that's, that's a challenge, but it's also a challenge to gain the trust of historically marginalized populations um, to be subjects in a clinical trial because of real and perceived issues in clinical trial design. Yeah, and, and we saw that especially with the, the COVID vaccine, right? I mean, there is good historical evidence of the inequities and the mis inequities done with the trials where you had African Americans enrolled in the trials. And they had bad outcomes, right? The, mm -hmm. the Tuskegee, the Henrietta Hack cells. So there's a lot of misconception and mistrust, right? Mm -hmm. And so trying to get someone vaccinated and gain that was a, a big, big landmark here. Even in the healthcare, you know, uh, with, with doctors as well as health professionals getting vaccinated because of that mistrust. So mm -hmm. having someone that looks or works into that, helped a lot. So voices of, of African American men and women who were who are health professionals advocating for that kind of helped a little bit more. But they, there is and, I, and that's something that you see more here. That's why, you know, having the vaccine projects have more African American, more women and more Latinos in there will help. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the other thing that the other day that I was at the hospital, it was the transplant donor month, I think, one one of the months. So they had a whole hall about how African Americans have donated, and and because we do see a lot of people with lung and liver, but also we see a lot of peripartum cardiomyopathy who end up having to have assisted devices, and so having be able to do that, and then looking at ways of how to make sure that they have the right support and the finance to be able to both undergo the, the transplant journey. It's another big factor, especially when you come from a small town uh, and you don't have a family support. And you can see that more, that inequity more in African-Americans than in other, than in the other group. Sure, sure. So, Switching gears from this very uh, important and heavy topic to something a little bit lighter, and I apologize to the listeners that, that we are switching gears uh, so quickly. <laughs> Running, do you have any bucket list items, places that marathons or half marathons or other events that, that you would like to run uh, uh, in the next few years or before your uh, legs and knees give out? <laughs> so it's a myth for the knees. It's all about making strength training. So I'm, I'm, now past that age where I need to do strength training and not, you know, not 20 anymore where I could just like run outside. So I, you know, I, I don't know, there is, there is London. And so I would like to, you know, run one of the majors. New York is another one. So London and New York uh, would be fun. And of course, I, I have a half marathon that I run in, in Guatemala. So I do that. So continue running them through. I, I like the half marathon distance. That's, that's good. You're only um, half crazy. I'm only half crazy. It keeps me sane. You know, I, I compose during my runs. So, you know, other people have crazy other things. I have, I have to run in, but bucket list, probably World Cup. I'm a big football fan. Um, so I've been very in tune with the World Cup going on right now. And then in a couple of years, Atlanta is going to be a hub for the World Cup for the men's. So one of the things is to be able to be at the final or the semifinal. So. But, well, know. that would be wonderful. And probably by the time that this episode comes out, we'll know who won the uh, Women's World Cup. But I uh, am uh, sentimentally cheering for the Australians because wouldn't it be fun if they won at home? Yeah, unfortunately, they played this morning and they're just not going to make it to the fight. <laughs> oh, oh, it's happened? They lost? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so to the, there's the semifinals. Uh, mm-hmm. Today was uh, England versus uh, Australia. Sam Kerr did wonderful, but it was not enough. Uh, so they'll face Sweden for the third place. So hopefully they'll they'll beat the Swedish. Not nothing against the Swedish, but I, I am just yes to all them. our Swedish listeners. We love uh, <laughs> the Swedish uh, athletes. Uh, and then on Sunday the twentieth, it is Spain versus Great Britain. So for the first time ever, a new champion will be crowned. So hopefully, of course, you know. I, I'll be cheering for for the Spanish-speaking country, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough because the, the, the British have a very good team. So excited about that! It's it's been, and but we'll see what the men's World Cup comes in two years and and see where twenty twenty takes us. But that will be ideal for bucket list places to travel. I don't know any anywhere fun. Anywhere fun. <laughs> Well, this has been absolutely, yes, he said. Oh, yeah, anywhere fun, but no snow. No so snow. I no, no, I don't do well with the cold weather. <laughs> you, you, you've had your, your, your fill with Cleveland and Chicago. 
Yes, I did. Yeah, those <laughs> cities by the lakes do get a lot of snow and they get quite cold. So uh, I'm going to be uh, interviewing uh, in not too long somebody from Chicago. So I'll get the uh, the counter view or maybe that person will tell me that they too want to move to Atlanta. <laughs> well, we always welcome people here. <laughs> Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, anything else that you think people should know about your career, your goals, and Shagas, or anything else? Yeah, so definitely, you know, we are living in a more global world. There is climate change. We are seeing more people mobilized from one place to another. So always in the back of the mind, think about our parasitic infections, especially the mm-hmm. tissue protozoas that can stay. Not just, you know, we have Chagas. You all guys know about toxoplasma. But Strongy is another one. It's something that we see often here. It can it can be very bad. I mean, it, it gives you sepsis and, and death, according to that. But also we have mosquito season, right? So mm-hmm. arboviral diseases. Uh, so if you're going to have a transplant patient, get them vaccinated for yellow fever before your transplant, not after the transplant, because mm-hmm. yellow mm-hmm. fever is a live vaccine. And this is for not for the bone marrow, but for the solid organs. If they're going to travel, if they're going to be somewhere, you know, that's the kind of the profile. You should think about vaccinating them with those before. And then, you know, kind of the good things about, you know, when they go to other places, be okay about not eating raw food and getting cryptosporidium and other fun things like Jardia. So, you know, it's always keeping in your mind. I, I think as, as globalization and travel, and especially those Transplant patients for two or three years who are, you know, doing well, they're not afraid anymore. Those are the ones that we really want to make sure that they live safely. And so always give them the talk. And if you think that they need some travel advice, either you can do it or send it to your colleague who has travel medicine advice just to make sure everything is okay um, around. And then for the people, it's, you know, transplant is a fascinating, it's a fascinating field. There's always something new. It's all about how you do the history taking. Working with the group has been wonderful. Our, our AST ID co-op is very warm and fussy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and we all like to collaborate and move things forward for the benefit of our patients. No, the, 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 very, very well said. One thing that the past few years have brought that I never would have expected in my life is that my little cute drug of ivermectin, it's not mine, became a, uh, a political issue. And I recently had a patient who uh, had COVID and also had risk factors for uh, uh, isis and they were heading toward transplant. As soon as the COVID was over, I think they were going to get a transplant. And I was wondering whether I should check serology for uh, strongyloidosis or just give them ivermectin and then maybe take a screenshot of their diagnosis and ivermectin and, and say, hey, look, at Hopkins, we're treating COVID with ivermectin. No, we're not. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's the only time, you know, I I am... If it's for, you know, for strongies, I'm a big proponent of ivermectin, nothing else. We did have issues getting ivermectin when you actually needed it because people were not and you needed to approve it. But checking serology is fine. Also, patients, you know, we've had some patients from Southeast Asia. So you want to always check, you know, some serologies either for uh, schistosoma. So, you know, that's an easy treatable, but you find that in Southeast Asia, we do have it a little bit on Brazil. Anything that has a eosinophilia should, you know, alert you that, you know, it might not just be a drug fever, just to the 
parasitic workup, especially strongy, that's, that's usually the one. And, you know, that's about much we can do. We do have some types of transplant with hydatid disease, which is echinococcus, and, and we've seen that. So, and that doesn't have to be tropical because you can come from Serbia, where we see mm-hmm. a lot of echinococcus because it's from the sheep. Mm-hmm. So it's even though, so, you know, you just have to stay alert and people want to go to Alaska and have, uh, uh, no, bear, no bear, no, no bear, no bear. Yeah, no trichinella, you know, things like that. So I think it's just an ongoing part. That's kind of the fun part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I promised I'd let you go, but now I have a, a question. I've seen you, you published oh. on Loa Loa, which is not so much of a transplant issue, but tell us a little bit about, about what that looks like in people in this country. So the patient that I, that we publish actually is an interesting collaboration between my stay in Houston and my transition here at Emory. So this patient was visiting family and relatives in Houston where they saw this eye worm go by. They saw this little squiggly thing under oh, eye. That would be quite, quite uh, <laughs> uh, scary for somebody who hasn't studied for boards. Yeah. And so they went to see an ophthalmologist uh, at Baylor and the ophthalmologist called me and then I said, okay. And then they told me, oh, I'm, I'm based in Atlanta. I said, okay, perfect. You're going to contact this person and we're going to treat you. But we do see that. Uh, I've had people who are what I call BFR, family visiting relatives that go back to the areas that endemic of Loa Loa, which is the West Africa points. And they go see the mango trees and they get bitten by bugs. So this is why bug repellents are good. And they come. And so it, uh, yeah, but seeing things scrawly around your, your eye prompts, prompts you to call the ophthalmologist. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been uh, terrific. And thank you so much. No, thanks for having me over. This is fantastic. 